All right, well, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into this pretty quick. I want to just sort of bring us back up to speed on, on where we're at here, and, and then we'll start on this morning's message. Um, at the beginning of the summer, we started a series called Lynchpin. Um, you know, it's probably one of the most challenging books of the Bible that we've been going through. It's the book of Deuteronomy. And on top of that, we did that in the summertime when everybody's kind of checked out on schoolwork. So, you know, I don't know if it was the smartest idea in the world or not, but we've been having fun going through the book of Deuteronomy. But we're looking at it through the lens of Jesus. Outside of the book of Psalms, it's the book he quoted the most during his time on earth. And so he drew from it. Um, he not only validated it, but he built upon it. He said, listen, this stuff is pointing to me and who I am and what I am fulfilling. I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. They speak of me and my life and what I came to do. And so we're looking at the book of Deuteronomy through the lens of Jesus. And so we've spent about four weeks on that up to this point. Um, you can go back and catch up on those if you want. The last two, we focused on... Um, the, the portion of scripture where Jesus says all the law and prophets are wrapped up in these two things, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself. And he pulled those from the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and said, this is what it's all about. And so that's what we covered right before I went out of town for a couple of weeks. Um, the last two Sundays, I'm not only personally grateful, but I feel like our church body was very blessed to have a couple of uh, wonderful men come as guest speakers local friends of ours in the area, Jeremy Jean, who's the pastor at a church um, called The Calling, was here a couple of weeks ago, and he preached a message on taking up our cross and following Jesus and kind of the sacrifice that comes from following him, and man, that life can be hard at times and a, and a struggle, but that God is working beautiful things in the midst of the storm, and he redeems those things. And then last Sunday, we heard from our friend Jared Justice. Um, he was a pastor for years in the area. Um, went back to school, got his master's in counseling, and now he ministers through counseling. And so he came and spoke last week and did a great job. I was personally encouraged this week going back and listening to his message um, on, man, I don't even know how to fully define it. It was just so good. Um, but it was, it was about emotional health, but it was about not letting our emotions dictate everything, but listening to what they're saying to us and learning to take them to the Lord. And and he pointed a lot to the book of Psalms and how the book of Psalms invites us to be real human beings and to go to God with our, our struggles, our hurts, our frustrations, and pour out our heart before him and that he's our refuge and that he listens and he cares and he heals us. Um, and these guys didn't know what each other were talking about, but I thought it was interesting. One talked about just the difficulty and challenges of a sacrificial life for Jesus, and the other one talked about getting kind of encouragement and hope along the way. And I just, I love how, how that kind of tied in together. And so we're continuing the series this morning. Um, this morning is part five of Lynchpin, um, titling this Character Matters. Character Matters. And so we're gonna talk about, um, man, just walking with Jesus and who he's shaping and molding us to be. Um, and so by way of just a little bit of, of introduction, you know, my, my heart and my hope is every time I preach a message that there's some combination of a full glimpse of the gospel picture of just who Jesus is for us. It's always about him, who he is, and what his grace has done in our lives. And so that we would just always have that big picture backdrop. And then there's also like the specific thing that we're kind of honing in on. You know, it's like if we took a microscope and it was, okay, here's the Bible, big picture. Now we're going to hone in on this, this point and, and see that kind of illuminated. And, and one of the challenges I've faced as a pastor over the years is, is anytime I'm preaching a message about um, like godly character as an example, something that sounds like it involves some work on our part, you know, where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean in, I'm going to grow, I'm going to work some spiritual muscles. I'm just always leery of my own propensity to be an earner. I've got to earn stuff from God. I've got to earn his favor. I can fall into earning my salvation. And it's just, it's not about that. It is God's grace that has saved us. And it's his grace that empowers us to grow. And, and so he has designed us to grow and to mature and to 
to experience the fullness of the life that he offers. And at times it feels difficult and it feels like discipline, it feels like work, but it's shaping something wonderful in our life. And so the full gospel message is that Jesus has already done something. He went to the cross and he rose again from the grave and he redeemed you and I. He has rescued and saved and redeemed us. And so he's done that work. The gospel is also about the fact that he's now operating in our lives. He's sanctifying us. He's growing us. He's changing us. I'm getting saved more and more every day, not in the sense of earning salvation, but I'm getting rescued from sin and struggle. And uh, he's, he's setting me free. He's making me whole. He's changing me. And so there's a process that's going on in my life. And then ultimately, I'm assured of an eternity with him. So it's also future. I am believing and trusting that when I breathe my last breath, I'm with him for all eternity. And I'm counting on that future work. Does this, does this make sense? And so that's, I just want that to be the backdrop of this this morning. This is not a message about how we need to be these good, right, religious people. It's a gospel message about how Jesus loves and saves us, and he loves us so much, he refines us for our good and for the good of people around us. My life can be more rich, more full. The lives of my wife, my children, my friends, my family members can be enriched because the love of God is changing me and is also then touching their lives. And so that should be the backdrop of growing in godly character. Okay, there's my introduction. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump right into the passage um, found in Matthew chapter 4, if you want to go ahead and turn there. It's the place where Jesus gets led into the wilderness to be tempted. Um, and it's, it's in this story that Jesus quotes three different times from the book of Deuteronomy. And so we're going to kind of check this out together this morning. So, Lord, one more time, we just come before you. We ask you, um, help us to hear from you. God, help me to say what needs to be said and not say things I shouldn't say. Um, and God, ultimately, I just pray you be speaking to our hearts this morning. God, where, where you want to um, encourage us, if there's been some difficulty, God, I pray you would do that. Uh, Lord, help us to find some strength that maybe we don't know that we have. It's strength that's in you. God, help, help um, your word to just come alive and make sense in our hearts. We're believing and trusting you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, so Jesus is coming fresh off of his baptism. Um, he's essentially right at the start of his adult ministry. Um, he's coming off of, of that water baptism. You know, the voice from heaven comes and declares, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's kind of this, this big seminal moment, right? Like he shows up on the scene. John had been declaring, um, the Messiah is coming. This guy's coming whose sandals I'm not even worthy to unloose. And then Jesus comes walking up. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus has arrived on the scene, and then he immediately does what we've all been taught to do in our society, right? Which is like, let's build on that momentum. Let's get our followers up, you know? Let's get ourselves known in the community. And so he immediately preached the Sermon on the Mount, right? Wrong. He disappeared for 40 days into the wilderness. And he was led out into the wilderness to, to be tempted, he was led out to go through a difficult, challenging, refining process. And so we're going to pick up right there. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. If there was ever a line that didn't really have to be there, I would have known he was hungry. Um, if they said he'd been fasting for 40 minutes, I, I would have been getting hungry at that point. Um, here, here's the deal. Like, I, I want to make this really clear and, and differentiate some things, okay? There are moments in time where um, we are going through circumstantial difficulty. Like, life's just hard, and some bad things happen that we didn't ask for, and they're just kind of in the category of, man, it's a broken world. There's, there's times where we're dealing with struggles and difficulties that, that are of no fault to our own, but they're a little more direct. They're a little more personal. There's, there's maybe a conflict with a person. There's some difficulty from another person. But, but there are times 
where for our growth and benefit, God will allow us to face some things that will grow us. And I, I think it's important to just note, Jesus didn't just sit back and decide, I think it'd be a good idea for me to go on an adventure. Or, you know, I, I, I think I'm just really in need of a, of a change of scenery right now. God led him into this. The Spirit of God called him out. And I believe that there are times where God will kind of shine a light and say, hey, I want to work on that. And the first step is, am I just willing to go along for that journey? You know, I think for many of us, we could almost stop at the beginning here and, and just maybe say, God, have I positioned myself in my relationship with you to have sensitivity when you're trying to shine a light on something? some area where you want to grow me or shape me and just pay attention to, to his voice there. And I can tell you, as a young believer in like my early 20s, maybe even 19, um, I, I kind of had this going into adulthood, coming out of teenage angst. Um, I'd kind of known the Lord my whole life, but, you know, I was kind of doing my own thing for a few years there and really had that kind of personal encounter with him. I've talked about some of this in the past where it's like, God, if you're real, you got to show me. And he did. And one of the things that I just, I didn't want to settle for was just kind of a mediocre religious life. The Bible talks so much about relationship. I was like, God, I want that. I want relationship. And he would show up in times of worship. He would show up in reading his word. But one of the things I began to recognize really quickly is that he was showing up by like warning me of things I shouldn't do or, or after I had done them, I just had that little sense like, ah, oh, man, not only was that messed up, but like I kind of do that a lot. That's something I struggle with. And one of the most clearest ways I ever heard him speak, it was like he was saying to me, if you will listen and respond when I point that out, you're going to grow in your relationship with me. And it was like a way that I could acknowledge I heard him. And so I, I, had, I had a job at the time working at a steel plant in Nashville, and I really wanted to be a light at that job. And one of the things I'd kind of allowed myself to do for a couple of years was just develop not the best language, um, especially when I was frustrated. And if you're working in a steel plant, there's a lot of opportunity to be frustrated. Um, and so I just, I wanted to shine a light. I was like, God, I, I don't, I don't want to be a guy that's just cursing all the time. Like, I, I want to be a light here. And it was, it was wild. Like, this may sound like just a silly, simple thing, but I just asked him, would you kind of give me a little warning in advance? And there were these twin things that just kind of kept happening that worked in unison. There were times where, where it was like he, he stopped me. I could feel it in advance, and I'd catch myself, and I wouldn't do it. But there were also times where I blew it, and immediately I knew it. And, but instead of, like, beating myself up, it was like, okay, God, thank you that you showed me that I blew it. And I just repented. I just stopped and said, God, I'm sorry. I want you to break this off my life. Will you set me free of this? And this thing began to happen where I was either thanking him because he had helped me avoid it, or I was repenting because I hadn't avoided it. And... It was crazy how that process, I could see it mapping over into, into like my reading of Scripture. It was like I, it developed this ability to hear God's voice because I was just seeing him in practical ways. I don't, is this making sense? And so I just want to say, like, I think he's after shaping our character, but he's after relationship. And in the process of shaping my character, what was really happening is I was just learning to rely on him and to know him and to recognize his voice. So then I could recognize moments when it was, hey, not stop doing that, but it was go do this. See that person over there that looks discouraged or downtrodden? I want you to go over there and just say something to them. And so I think there's a lot of mystery in the church when we talk about having a relationship with God where it's just a buzzword, right? Like, have we not heard that like our, our whole lives, like have a relationship with God? But nobody ever talks about like, how do you do that? And, and 
this is an example of ways that we can form a relationship with him. We invite him into real life things. We acknowledge when we hear his voice and we respond to him. And instead of viewing mistakes as I'm a failure and I've blown it, view it as a part of the relational process. When my wife and I have a fight, I don't then go, well, I've blown it and ruined our marriage. I guess we're getting a divorce because we had a fight. No, like I lean in or I should. (laughs) I repent, hopefully. (laughs) And we work it out and it gets better and we learn to forgive each other in our relationship it's not like the fight is good, but if we handle it right, it, it strengthens our relationship. It grows it. And so we mature and grow and experience more love. And man, when, when you've experienced really blowing it with someone you care about, and then they like really genuinely forgive you and love you and hang in there with you, have, have you experienced that? Man, it is it is powerful. Your, your appreciation for them and your relationship with them, it deepens. Man, I didn't mean to preach this much on the first two verses. Um, but, but Jesus, see, at the start of his ministry, it's the thing that ended up defining his ministry. You know, I don't know how the mystery of he's fully God, he's fully man, how did that work? I believe it is pretty clear from Scripture that he sought time with the Father. I think it's very clear from Scripture that the Holy Spirit led him. And so he was um, temporarily limited while he was on this earth being in a human body like you and I. And so, uh, you know, I believe that, that God wants to do that same kind of stuff with us. And some of the amazing things that happened in Jesus' life, they were a direct result of some of these simple things that happened in his life. So, leaning into this now, he's been led into the wilderness, he's fasted for 40 days, he's spending time with God, and man, it's not easy. It's not easy. It's difficult. It's a real desert. I don't need to tell you all the Greek words for desert, okay? It's a desert. It's dry. It's hot. It's not a pleasant place, and he's hungry. And so, we move into that, and of course, What does Satan do? Right off the bat, Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, I think it's an interesting thing that the enemy not only plays upon the fact that he's obviously hungry and tempts him with food, but do you realize like this was the same initial temptation in the garden with Adam and Eve tempting them with, with the fruit of the tree? And he not only tempted them with, hey, this fruit's gonna be really good for you, but he attacked their relationship with God. Can you really trust him Look how good this is, and he's denying you this. Well, he attacks his relationship here with Jesus. If you're really the son of God, let me plant a seed of doubt. Would he let you be out here in the middle of this desert, starving, hungry? Why is this where he led you? Are you really his son? Did you even hear him clearly coming out here? Like he's attacking that relationship, and then he's offering something. This, this, is, this is something that the enemy will do to us all the time. Now, I want to I wanna look really quick at some context for us because Jesus is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. So you can flip there in your Bible. You can follow along on the screen if you want. I'm going to read a couple verses before and after what Jesus quoted. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 5. And I think it's interesting that Jesus' mind goes to this passage while he's in a desert fasting. And so Moses is writing, and he's encouraging the people to remember everything they've been going through in the wilderness coming out of Egypt before they go into the promised land. And he says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might do what? Humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. It was a growth opportunity It was character building. 
And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know this, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And then he tells them the result. You guys learn to trust God and feed on what he had to give you, and here's what he did for you. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. God was using that experience to grow his people before they moved into the promised land. There was sharpening, there was change, there was refining that was happening. In fact, there was not only their own personal stuff, but the way we opened the series is we talked about learning how to grab the baton from the generation that's gone before us both good and bad. There's good things for us to learn from our parents specifically, but in general, past generations, um, historical stuff that we can learn, things that believers have passed down over the years. But we also, unfortunately, tend to grab a lot of the baggage too. And so we face some of the very battles our parents and grandparents faced. And then we face stuff in our own day. And so he's saying, remember all of that and see that I, I wanna teach you to be humble and to walk with me. I wanna grow and shape and refine you. And I'm doing this like a father who really loves his kids and disciplines them for their benefit, for their growth. And so I wanna teach you to trust me. Now, this, this picture of, of eating food and receiving word from God, receiving word, I don't want to get too philosophical for you here, but there is a theme that runs throughout the Scripture. It's the idea of the logos. It's, it's the word. It's the word that speaks life, right? As life is being formed at the dawn of creation, word does that. It's the word that speaks ultimate truth about who you are, what this world is really all about, how, it, how it's been broken, but how it's meant to operate. It's the word that speaks life. It's this big picture word. And one of the things that is interesting throughout the scripture is that word is associated with food. It's something I consume. Now, I think that's interesting. And I'm gonna give you a couple reasons I think it's interesting. It's probably interesting for many more than this. One reason I think it's interesting is that food is good. Thank you. Somebody can agree. My dad. I wonder where I got it from. F food, food is good. Man, about this time, I probably shouldn't say this because y'all are gonna sit here for another 15 or 20 minutes, but about this time every Sunday, I start thinking about how good food really is. <laughs> I'd love to tell you I'm super spiritual, but there is this little thing that'll run in the background sometimes. <laughs> Food's good, it tastes good. I, I think it's interesting in the garden, it says that the fruit was appealing to the eye. It looked good. Man, Food looks really good when you're really hungry. I mean, you just go, like, skip a meal or two, and food just looks amazing. And so food is good, and I, I think God's trying to associate something for us. The truth that I have, man, it is good. It's appealing. It's beneficial. Another reason I think he talks about food is what comes after that. It doesn't just look good. It is good. It gives us life. It gives us energy. It gives us strength. Um, the right foods help our brain develop. The right foods are good for our physical bodies. Food is, is good. It's, it's life-giving. It's, life, it's also life-sustaining. You don't just eat once, right? It's not like, hey, I need some food. Let me get a bite to eat. Now I'm set for life. I eat minimum three times a day but we're designed that way. We're designed to consistently eat. So, so think about these three pieces for a minute. God has associated his truth and the life that comes from his word with food. It's, it looks good. It looks appealing. It actually is good and is appealing. It's sustaining. And it's something that we should be eating regularly and consistently in order to be healthy and grow. You see those connections there? This, there's a reason God paints the picture this way. The wrong food tears you up. 
It destroys you. Eating the same two or three things over and over again isn't good for you. Even if those things are okay in and of themselves, it's bad for you. And so we can get out of shape. We can get disease. We can get all kinds of things from just eating the wrong stuff. What we eat matters. And so Jesus makes a point right from the end to say, Satan, I'm not going to buy your lies or what you're offering. What you're offering looks appealing right now. It looks great. It looks tempting. And I'm really hungry. Now, if you think this is just some random story about food, you get yourself in a hard, dry season in your life. You find yourself in a place where you're weary, you're worn down, Man, life is hard, and I'm telling you, there are things that this world will offer you that will look really appealing, like things that will give you rest or some sense of fulfillment or some temporary joy, and they'll look appealing, and maybe even the bite tastes pretty good. But ultimately, what it does is poison and destroy us. We were made to live on and consume the truth that God has to offer us. And he's given it to us in the form of the written word of God, but he's given it to us in the form of our living Savior, Jesus, who is the word made manifest. And we're told to abide in him. And so check this out. In John 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus is talking to the people who who are believing in him, who are following him. And he says these words. And it's important to connect these two verses together because we separate the second one all the time in our quotes. And we miss that this is one continual sentence. It's a complete thought. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, do we need to unpack what the word abide means? It's your abode. It's where you live. That's home. That's the steady, consistent place where you live. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, comma, and. And you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? It will set you free. This is a continuous thought. Abide in my word. You'll know truth. Truth will set you free. You know what we do often? We completely leave out the abide in my word part, and we just say you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But we even do worse than that. We leave out the you shall know. We just say the truth will set you free. The truth will not set you free. The truth that you know is what will set you free. And God tells us the way to know truth that will truly set us free is by abiding in his word. What is it that I consume? What is it that that sustains me, that fills me, that satisfies me? Man, it is the power of the word of God in Jesus Christ come to life in me now. See, if if the Bible is a living book, and if Jesus is the fullness of the word made flesh, he now tells me to live on that word, and he says, it comes alive in my heart. It becomes living in me when I feast on it and apply it, when I use it for my growth and benefit. And see, Jesus was able after 40 days in the desert, while he's starving, to be sustained by the word of God because it was ingrained in him to do so. All too often, we wait till we're in the moment of trouble or despair, and then it's like, oh God, where are you? Now listen, he's there, and and he he forgives and he rescues, okay? I don't want to minimize that, but I'm just telling you, I think we would be so much better suited for the challenges and struggles of this life if our habit was consuming the truth of his word and it getting down inside of us and being a core part of our lives. And we would have truth to draw on, man, when we're feeling empty and in trouble. I've had some real hard moments in my life. Man, like as hard as it gets. And there have been moments where everything in me is like ready to give up and doubt God and, and God, is it even worth continuing? What, like what is going on in my life? But there's just that little bit of truth that's got a holding that says, hold on, I'm working new freedom into your life. And if you'll hang in there and hold on to my word, I'm doing something. 
and I've watched him rescue me from absolute despair. I've watched it personally in my life. I've watched it in the lives of my friends where I've just, I've watched people in moments of suffering who love Jesus and just been in total awe of them. Like, I know we read this and I know we talk about this, but man, how are you walking with such grace? How are you holding on in the midst of this? It's amazing to me. I don't, I don't want to embarrass them, but like, I love you guys. And I'm, I'm proud of you guys. And, and you're showing me how to grieve, but grieve well. And I know it's not easy, and I'm going to stop talking about you in a second, but like, You've shown us how to let Jesus be your anchor. And I know that y'all are feeding on years of faithfully knowing and trusting Jesus. And I'm in awe of you guys and what God's doing in your life. I know, I know. But you leaned in. And see, that's, that's how this works. Like, he does it, yes, but we're saying yes to him. And we're consuming and taking in the truth. If I starve myself of the truth, I'm gonna be empty. So let's feed on the truth. So Jesus is able to face that temptation, resist it, and he points to the word of God and he says, that's what I feed on. That's what sustains me. Number two, the second temptation. Matthew chapter four, verses five and seven. So that didn't work. So the devil's like, well, you're about to start your ministry. Let me see if I can help you kickstart this thing. Yeah, this one used to really confuse me, but it makes more sense when you realize Jesus is about to be going out and declaring truth and people are gonna begin following him and learning from him. And so Satan says, come with me, here's what we're gonna do. And he took him to the holy city and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. I want you at the religious epicenter of everything. I'm gonna set you on the pinnacle and then here's what you're gonna do. Verse six, and Satan said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, this used to be the weirdest one to me. I'm like, I don't really understand why that's a big temptation. I don't really find myself wanting to jump off of high buildings towards jagged rocks and just, you know, see if some angels catch me. I, I don't know about you. I don't face that temptation very often. That's not one, you know, I wake up with on a Monday afternoon or something. Like, um, not that I sleep in until Monday afternoons. <laughs> Monday afternoons are great for a nap if you can get it. But no, like, like, it just didn't make sense to me. But what he's actually saying is he's, he's appealing to the fact that his ministry is about to begin. And he's giving him like this clear, easy path to suddenly attract a lot of attention. I mean, if you're the son of God, why don't you just show everybody right from the start? Go to the most public place where everybody gathers to meet God, jump off, the angels will rescue you, and they'll go, oh, Messiah, and they'll know. He's just gone from 40 days in the desert, and Jesus knows what he came to do. And Satan says, hey, just do this, and man, you'll have them. And they'll see that you're the son of God, and they'll follow you. The, the best way that I could relate this to something we might struggle with is I believe that this is the difference between reputation and character. It's the difference between reputation and character. And, and I believe, because I've seen this in my life and I've seen it play out in the lives of others, that a lot of our drive to be moral, well-thought-of people is based on the image we're presenting to other people. Specifically, so I will be loved, accepted, maybe followed, believed in, and, and we can allow ourselves to be so driven by what is the perception of people around me instead of not worrying about that. And see, that's this appeal. Like, man, just let them see how glorious and amazing you are, and they'll just be in. And Jesus is like, I would be compromising my very character to do that. 
That's taking the easy street. That's ignoring the real issue. The real issue is, who am I going to be? I am the Son of God, so I'm going to act like the Son of God and not put my Father to the test. That's what he's saying. Who I am and who I'm going to be is more important than the perception of other people. Now, check this out. Again, the scripture that he references highlights what he's talking about here. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. I don't have time to unpack that whole story, but they specifically were testing God on an issue. Verse 17. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you, And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of all the people around you that are watching you come into the land of Canaan. In sight of your friends and your neighbors, your spouse, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies before you as the Lord God has promised. If, if I am concerned about character, about who I am when nobody's looking and nobody knows, if I'm concerned about this relationship, what will happen is good things will come. But difficulties will come too. Hey, you'll get to go into the land. You'll get to take possession. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Oh yeah, and there's enemies to fight. And it's going to be difficult along the way. But see, character, caring about character means I'm going to take the challenges and struggles with the victories and the rewards. Because really, those are all secondary. What matters is this relationship and being a person that's after God's heart. It's back to what we talked about a few weeks ago, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If I'm worried about him and what he thinks of me, am I walking right before him? The rest takes care of itself. Now, here's the beauty of this. This is part of the freedom Jesus is talking about that comes from knowing the truth. See, the very time and energy that we can spend being so worried about how we are perceived in the world and how people view us, man, that's not freedom, that's a trap. And instead of being free to be who I am and who God's called me to be and live my life, I'm consumed with fear and anxiety and doubt and worry and just wondering how I'm being perceived. And the truth is, you can spend your whole life consumed about with your reputation and you still can't control what people think of you. It's a trap and it will never satisfy. But there is incredible freedom that God offers us when we realize if, if, I'm just, if I'm consumed with right here, and then this is just about me loving people the best I can, loving them well, it frees me from my own narcissism. <laughs> it frees me from the burden of trying to make life all about me. I'm living to know him and please him and be in a relationship with him, and it sets me free from my own pride an ego that man just gets into everything. It sets me free of that. And it sets me free from the trap of being a people pleaser instead of a God pleaser. Check this out. The disciple who knew how loved he was, right? John the apostle called himself um, the the beloved disciple, right? The one Jesus loves. Um, I always thought that was a little arrogant, (laughs) But then as I got a little older, I realized he just, he just understands how secure he is in the love of God. He knows he's loved. And look what he had to say about this. John 1, verses 8, uh, John, sorry, 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment or the, the fear of the repercussions of what's going to happen to me is really the idea there. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Man, I, I can walk in a love relationship with God where, where my character is being grown and sharpened because I'm just worried about him and, and where I'm at with him. 
And this massive amount of freedom comes in and fear begins to dissipate and go away. That's the power of walking with him. Am I worried about reputation? Or am I free of that and focused on godly character? Third one. You guys good for about five more minutes? Uh, a couple of you are. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Last one. Matthew 4, verses 8 through 10. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You know, the, the idea here, and there's, there's a picture of this uh, we're gonna look at in just a second. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't sound very tempting in our modern way of thinking to bow down to Satan and worship him. And it seems even pretty absurd to, like, bow down to an idol, right? Like, I, I've never been tempted to make a golden calf and get down on my knees and light some incense and sing some weird songs, or I've never had that temptation. But we, we don't realize that we idealize all kinds of things in this world. We idolize certain ways of life. We, we chase certain things as if, if I get that, I will get ultimate satisfaction, if I can just have that. And we spend our lives worshiping something that we're hoping will satisfy. Look, look at what the offer was. You'll gain the whole world. If you'll worship this, look what you'll gain. Man, talk about that being front and center all the time. We live in such a consumer mindset, a consumer world. I mean, we're being told all the time, like, if you just have this, it'll taste great. Life will be amazing. Look, you've got this Dr. Pepper. Look how wonderful it's going to be if you've got a Dr. Pepper. Everybody's celebrating and having fun. And it's like, it doesn't really offer that. It can't do that. And we laugh about something silly like that, but our lives can get wrapped up in the pursuit of idolizing other things, thinking they will be the ultimate thing that will satisfy. And then here's the real problem. Not only will that thing not satisfy, but if something becomes an obstacle or a person becomes an obstacle to that thing, they're now an enemy. And so really quickly, a spouse, a dear friend, a family member, even God himself can be the enemy because they're denying me of that thing I'm trying to get after. I'll give you an example in my life that, man, it like knocked me back when I realized this. I was idolizing, um, I don't even know if I can fully put it into words, but if, if you've been a parent with some kids, I think you'll understand. I was idolizing peace and rest, for lack of a better word. Not Jesus' peace and rest, just like, my own, everything's calm and quiet and good and the kids don't need anything and everything is settled and I just, ah, everything's good. And what began to happen is I could never get that, oddly enough, living in a house with six children and a couple of dogs. It's weird, I know. I could never get that. I never could get that satisfaction of just everything being okay. And then what began to happen is I began to realize my kids are now my enemy. When, when my kids need something, even something legitimate, but they're the fifth one to ask me in the last 20 minutes, I wish I could tell you this was something I'm over, but this is more like confession time. I, and I'm serious. I mean, we're, I'm, we're laughing about it, but like, I'm serious. Like, when it's the fifth kid in the last 20 minutes, I act like it's that fifth kid's fault that everybody needed something. And then they're just like, hey, I banged my head on the... Well, but like, what were you doing running in the house? And it's like, they got a bonked head. Like, I need to kiss their head and like, you know. Are you tracking with me? Like, like we find idols way more easily than we ever admit. And then things that are actually really important become the enemy. And we betray the very things we love, the very God we love, to bow down and serve this elusive thing that will never satisfy ever. I'm never getting that. Not really. Not the kind I'm looking for. But he's my rest. 
and he gives me peace that passes all understanding. It's not that I can't have that. It's just not the way I'm trying to get it. When I come to him for who he is, I get all the other stuff too. But I seek first him and his kingdom or righteousness, and then all these things are added. Desiring just right, good relationship with God, first and foremost, worshiping him and letting him provide for all of my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because he's king. I, I want to I close by telling you a weird story, but it's from the Bible, so, you know, talk to God about it. <laughs> but I'm going to close with a weird story and read a verse to you. So, uh, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy there about fearing God and worshiping him. And, and then in this passage in Deuteronomy, it goes on from what Jesus is talking about in chapter, or what Moses is talking about in chapter 6 that Jesus quotes. And then in verse, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, uh, Moses gives a recap of their history. And it's a recap of ways that they've walked in godly character and ways that they haven't and how God redeemed it. And in the middle of the story, he, he reminds them of when God gave them the law. And Moses, oddly enough, is gone for 40 days and 40 nights on the mountaintop, getting the tablets of stone. And while he's gone on the mountain getting the law of God, and the people know that's where he is, and they're waiting for him to come back, and they saw the stuff happening on the mountaintop, man, the lightning and thunder, and I, man, who knows what that scene was like. But they saw it, and they knew Moses was there. In a month and a half, they were just like, forget this. Man, there's no forward momentum. I don't even know if he's coming back. And so they create a golden calf and begin to worship it. They're, they're looking for a new ideal, a new direction. And without getting all the details, they're basically looking backwards at Egypt and going, life was pretty good back there. Sure, we were slaves, but we had plenty of food and life wasn't so bad. We never do that. I mean, I never look back, but they did. They made this golden calf. So Moses comes down, imagine this. He's been with, with God for 40 days on the mountaintop. He's got the stone tablets that like God himself engraved. And he comes down, he sees what's happening. Joshua's with him and goes, sounds like there's a war or something going on. Like they're being attacked. Moses goes, no, that ain't war. That's a party. They're singing and celebrating. And he walks into camp and he sees what's going on and he just throws the tablets on the ground and they break. And he's just heartbroken. And he goes another 40 days and he fasts and he weeps and he's just crying out to God, God, would you forgive us? And there, there's a sense of real, genuine, I'm heartbroken over our sin. It's not a flippant, I'm sorry. Like, it's a real, genuine, God, I'm heartbroken over how we've blown it, and I'm repenting. And then he does the weirdest thing. They take the golden calf that had been made out of the gold, and they busted it up into fine powder, and then they sprinkled it into water, and everyone drank the water. That's a weird story. And I've thought about that story and how weird it is and wondered, God, what's going on there? And then I remembered back to this idea of what we eat and how we learn and how we gain knowledge. And I felt like God was saying, that's the way to do it. Real, genuine repentance that leads you to learn from the mistake that you made. We're gonna break this thing down to its most essential parts and we're gonna gain knowledge from it. I, I'm gonna look this thing honestly in the face, say, what is the root of this problem? What is really going on here? And I wanna bust that thing up and destroy it and I wanna learn from it. I want to gain knowledge. And what I love about that is even when we make mistakes, when we come to him with those mistakes, we grow. We mature. I think so much of our Christian life, when we struggle and stumble and fall, I think it's a failing. God must be disappointed in me. I've known him for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and I'm still doing this dumb thing. And we view it as a failure and like pull away from him. And he's saying, that's a success story. If you'll bring that to me, 
I'm going to teach you something. I'm going to forgive you so you're going to learn more about my mercy and grace, but I'm going to give you strength to see that thing destroyed into nothing but dust and powder, and you can overcome it by my power and my grace. See, we can become people of character not by getting it right all, by, all the time, but by walking with him, recognizing his voice, being willing to let him shine a light on the current temptation that we're facing, gaining strength by resisting it and feeding on the truth of the word and gaining strength when we blow it by repenting and learning and growing from that mistake. And slowly but surely, steady by steady, we grow in our walk with Jesus and we become more and more like him and we begin to experience the abundant life that he talks about that's available by abiding in him. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God gave us a spirit. Remember, this all started by being led by the spirit. The spirit God gives us is not a spirit of fear, so I gotta live up to what the big guy upstairs expects of me. It's not about fear, and it's not about fear of people and trying to be a good person so I'm liked and accepted. He has not given me a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of self-control. By the grace and power of God in our lives, we have strength we don't realize we have. We can experience the love of God poured out into our life, and we can grow and gain self-control, and it'll change us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your great love for us. God, I, I thank you for mercy and forgiveness and all of that. God, I thank you for your grace that is on display um, through the ways you rescue us. But God, I also thank you that your grace is on display by giving us power to be who you've called us to be and, and do what you've called us to do. And so God, thank you for your presence. Thank you for the relationship that we're invited into. God, would you help us to, to grow slowly, steadily, daily, by abiding and feasting on your truth, by being more concerned with character than reputation, and God, by even being willing to learn from our mistakes when we chase other idols. Thank you that you are a good, forgiving God and that you set us on a path towards life and that you walk that path every day with us. God, we need you. We're relying on you. We trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.